Airlines were counting on a travel comeback. Then came Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now airlines could cut capacity as Russia's attack pushes jet fuel prices to multi-year highs. And steakhouses closed at a higher rate than any other type of restaurant during earlier stages of the pandemic. I'll talk with Cranes reporter Ali Maradi about why that is and how many are adapting to stay afloat. So they're getting rid of some of the pricier steaks on their menu. They're diversifying their menu just so they have more levers to pull. If you get a really expensive steak that nobody's going to buy, it's a waste of money for you and it's taking up space on your menu that could be occupied by something like chicken that maybe is a little bit cheaper for a consumer to purchase. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, March 8th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Cranes reporter Ali Moradi here to talk about steakhouses. So, Ali, your reporting turned up something that I thought was pretty interesting, and that is that steakhouses seem to close at a higher rate than other restaurants did during the pandemic. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's very fascinating, especially for Chicago, right, which is like quintessentially a steakhouse town. Yeah. So basically, I got some data that showed that Chicago lost about one third of its steakhouses throughout the course of the pandemic. It's for a variety of reasons. A lot of them are obvious, right? Steaks don't travel well, um, not as well as something like pasta or sushi, which if you think about, you know, your own buying habits for your takeout food the past two years, like how many times did you get a steak to go from a restaurant? So you have that on top of inflation, which is obviously affecting everybody in the restaurant world and prices at the grocery store and everywhere. But for steaks, I mean, beef in particular, the prices have gone up really high. And for a while, consumers were paying for the increased prices, especially last year as everybody was excited to go back out and eat again. But now it's just not something people can stomach anymore. So even the restaurants that have stuck around, the steakhouses that have survived, they're kind of starting to drastically change their menus and how they operate. What, what kind of changes are they making? So they're getting rid of some of the pricier steaks on their menu. They're diversifying their menu just so they have more levers to pull. If you get a really expensive steak that nobody's going to buy, it's a waste of money for you. And it's taking up space on your menu that could be occupied by something like chicken that maybe is a little bit cheaper for a consumer to purchase. I actually talked to one restaurant that is completely switching from a steakhouse to an Italian concept. It was called Rosebud Prime on Dearborn and Madison in the Loop. It has not reopened yet. It's been closed throughout the duration of the pandemic. And when they do reopen, it will be Italian. They don't have the name picked out yet. But part of that is because, you know, they have nine restaurants around the city and they have a commissary where they make all of their, you know, pastas from scratch and their sauces and everything. So that's going to save them money, right? There's higher margins on pasta than there are on steaks for these restaurants. And the prices are going to be more approachable. So they're hoping that they can get more people through the door. And furthermore, it eases some of those supply chain issues that they may be facing. So if their you know, meat processor shuts down because there's a COVID outbreak you know, or whatever it may be going forward, they don't have to worry about it because they're making all of their own pasta at that central location. 
What about the restaurants that did close? Are you seeing those operators pop up in any other venues or doing other types of restaurants at this point? So some of the big ones that we saw close, and this was really in 2020 that this news started coming out, right? Downtown in River North, we saw Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, Morton's The Steakhouse, Lori's The Prime Rib, which closed after 46 years. A lot of them had been there for decades and decades. And some of those places, they do remain vacant. I tried to reach out to some of the real estate agents operating them, and some of them told me that they're filling them with other restaurants that haven't been announced yet. So that's something I'll be watching. But it's interesting because it's been two years since some of these shut down. You know, they've just been sitting vacant in River North. Part of the problem here is that steakhouses were kind of a playground of the corporate credit card. And largely that hasn't come back just because a lot of people aren't traveling for business still. And also we haven't gotten a ton of the conventions back. It is starting again. Even traffic in the loop is increasing little by little every month. But it's still not enough, you know, to keep some of these places alive. For the big names that we've seen close, some of them do still have operations in the suburbs, which doesn't shock me. You know, there's a lot of restaurants that have migrated out to the suburbs throughout the course of the pandemic. People are working from home and they're eating close to their home, too. So on the flip side of that, if steakhouses are closing at a higher rate than other restaurants, what restaurants have closed the least frequent? It's the ones that you would think of, right? So the pizza places have done better, Italian restaurants, your Japanese and sushi joints, A lot of these places wet into the pandemic with an advantage because historically they already offered delivery. So they didn't have to make that big pivot, you know, that everybody has been talking about for two years. So if we look at the data really quickly here, Chicago lost 28.8% of its steakhouses over the past two years, but it only lost about 15% of its Italian restaurants and about 10% of its Japanese and sushi joints. So you can see there, basically, there's no restaurant type or category that didn't get hit really hard by the pandemic. But some of them were able to survive a little bit better, which I think is an interesting lens to look at this through. The other thing I should say, too, about this data and um, the story I did is that I looked specifically at sit-down restaurants for this. I didn't factor in the drive-through joints, you know, and all of those places because fast food places, they're kind of on a different playing field altogether. And then overall... Because some of these restaurant types have survived a little bit better, they're gaining share of restaurants, you know, in the city. So that's interesting. And it just points to another way in which the pandemic has completely and probably irreversibly reshaped the dining scene in the city. Absolutely. And I'm so fascinated by all the ghost kitchens popping up, too. Yeah, that is fascinating. Stay tuned for that. I'm digging into that a little bit more. That data is wild. It seems polarizing as well, too. Among restaurant operators. Among restaurant operators. Yeah, for sure. Some love them. Some hate them. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what happens and what kind of staying power they have. And, and you know, you started by saying that Chicago is such a steakhouse town. Why did we get that reputation in the first place? It dates back really to the Union Stockyards, which we all have heard of and we're huge here. But actually, it goes back farther than that. And it's pretty interesting, right? So... As far back as the city itself, we saw restaurants popping up, first of all, in hotels. That was the first place where we saw any restaurant in the city. And meat was always at the center of the menu. Fast forward, you know, a few decades to the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, when they're opening the Union Stockyards. And basically, the city becomes a destination for railroad cars packed with beef on the hoof. Chicago becomes known for this, right? They're shipping meat from coast to coast, 
But in Chicago, that meat is fresher because it didn't have to travel by rail car. It's also cheaper because the cost of shipping it across the country isn't built in. So more and more people are thinking of Chicago as good meat, as more affordable meat. And then if you look kind of digging through some really old newspaper clips, which I did for the story and found pretty fascinating, chop houses, as they became known, quickly became gathering places for people that were working downtown. So you've got politicians, newspaper men, other movers and shakers. There's one place in particular, I found a clip from a story, and it was from 1898. And they talk about this Billy Boyle's chop house, which opened in the late 1870s. And it was kind of this gathering scene for everybody from, you know, your gamblers and uh, all the way up to your politicians. And they talk about it as being, quote, the scene of many potent political gatherings and impromptu caucuses where aspiring lawmakers were made or unmade. The um, broker is sitting down munching his chop at the same table as the gambler and the sneak thief and the bank president are ordering from the same bill of fare. And it's just interesting to really see how life, especially downtown, revolved around this. Just like today, right? You can see that same ethos of it being kind of a place where you wine and dine, where business people are going and taking their clients and kind of showing them that there's this scene and you know, there's a scene where you can go and see and be seen in Chicago. And it's interesting. You know, I don't, a lot of people I talked to for the story, they said they don't think we're going to lose that. We've always been like a meat and potatoes and red sauce kind of town. But um, the steakhouses that are going to survive are going to be the ones that diversify their menu and move away from meat a little bit more. And I, I love this idea of the the chop house originating sort of as like this great crossroads, almost like defying class issues and, and pushing through all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. There's like this aspect of glamour to it, but also at the same time, it's a big gathering point for all walks of life. And I spoke to a historian about this, a culinary historian, and he was saying it was very much like a spot for, he called it the middling class because the middle class was sort of just developing at that time. And that's where people went, you know, and I guess at a certain point in history, women weren't allowed necessarily in all the steakhouses. So they had, you know, different cafeterias that were developing for them, too. And again, those were built around meat. You know, we talked about some of the menus and what was there and how people ate back then. And it's pretty fascinating to see largely how much um, it stayed the same. And some of that was influence coming from Europe, from France and uh they would come through New York, the trends would, and then they would open here in Chicago too. So it's kind of really interesting to look at. So interesting. I think food history in particular is such an interesting area of focus for sure. Absolutely. Allie, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to talk with you about all this fun stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, Tourism Group Choose Chicago has two finalists for its new CEO. We'll talk about that and more right after this. You're invited to join Cranes for our Spring Real Estate Forum, a conversation with Fritz Kagey. When he took office in 2018, Fritz Kagey set out to make the Cook County property tax assessment process more accurate, transparent, and fair. In a conversation with Crane's senior reporter, Albie Galoon, Kagey will discuss the steps he's taken to accomplish those goals, the obstacles he has encountered, and what lies ahead as his campaign for re-election gears up. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit chicagobusiness.com events. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. U.S. Airlines counting on renewed demand for spring and summer travel as more people are vaccinated and COVID case numbers continue to decrease. 
Now face a new setback as Russia's attack on Ukraine pushes jet fuel prices to multi-year highs. Bloomberg reports that Connor Cunningham, an MKM Partners analyst, said in a note Friday that carriers could announce reductions in planned flying as they update financial guidance at industry conferences in the coming weeks. Though the analyst also said the blow may be softened as tightening supply makes it easier to boost fares. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has impacted global oil markets and fear of a supply shortage has driven up prices. Fuel and labor are the largest costs for airlines, and Bloomberg notes that spot jet fuel prices in New York Harbor soared Friday to the highest level since 2008. Cunningham also said he expects airlines not only to trim capacity and increase prices, but he also expects second and third quarter flying to be reduced. He said American, Southwest and Alaska Airlines will likely make cuts. International travel, which hasn't fully recovered to 2019 pre-pandemic levels, is more likely to be trimmed, he said. American has added back capacity sooner than rivals during the pandemic, and Cunningham said United and Delta are unlikely to announce U.S. reductions as they continue rebuilding their networks. A pause in near-term bookings linked to the war may be temporary, Cunningham said, especially in domestic markets. But he also noted that it's not yet clear if the war will ruin what was expected to be a significant recovery in Europe this summer. The third-largest car insurer in Illinois joins Allstate, the second-largest, in imposing the steepest one-time car insurance price increases in memory. Progressive is hiking auto insurance rates in Illinois by 8 to 10 percent, becoming the latest major insurer to impose a double-digit increase. Crane's Steve Daniels reports that those buying through an agent rather than directly through the insurer are seeing the biggest increases. Progressive, based just outside Cleveland, is raising rates for those customers by 10.1% on average, according to a filing made public March 2nd by the Illinois Department of Insurance. For those buying without an agent, Progressive is increasing rates 8.4% on average, according to the filing. The increases went into effect on February 18th and will be reflected in bills once policies renew. And those are the steepest one-time increases in Illinois in memory for Progressive, which joins Northbrook-based Allstate in bringing double-digit price increases to customers. Allstate last month hiked rates by 12% for most of its Illinois drivers. The largest insurer in the state, Bloomington-based State Farm, just filed for a 5% increase, but its rates remain below where they were pre-pandemic. However, it's not just happening in Illinois. Progressive is charging more in most states as it struggles to keep pace with higher costs per claim. The industry is blaming soaring used car prices for its growing costs in covering accidents. A staple of standard medical care is in short supply in the U.S. due to the most recent wave of the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine could make matters worse. Saline solution is used in hospitals for everything from reconstituting drugs to flushing IV lines to rehydrating patients. It's a routine but also critically important part of taking care of cancer patients, kids suffering from the flu, or people who wind up in the hospital because of an accident. And even a small hospital can reportedly use saline thousands of times a day. But a convergence of factors including supply chain bottlenecks, high demand caused by the influx of Omicron patients into hospitals, and virus-related worker scarcity has now made this hospital essential much harder to find. 
According to the FDA, saline vials and bags of all sizes are now in shortage in the U.S. Manufacturers say they're working hard to meet demand and new production facilities are coming online. The shortage has deep roots, connected in part to the effort to get people vaccinated against COVID-19, but saline shortages are not a new problem. Supply issues have happened before, notably in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in 2017, raising questions about whether producers could have done more to foresee potential issues. Pharmacists and saline makers say they expect the issues to ease as the Omicron surge continues to decline. But as Bloomberg also notes, more supply issues could pop up in the longer term from the war in Ukraine. Healthcare group purchasing organization Premier said Tuesday that disruptions to oil and natural gas output in Eastern Europe or Russia could affect the global supply and pricing of plastics, materials that are needed to make, among other things, saline bags and syringes to administer the fluid. Choose Chicago has two finalists for its new CEO. Citing sources familiar with the search process, Crane's Danny Ecker reports that Rich Gamble, who recently served as board chairman of the Magnificent Mile Association and Chicago Architecture Center president and CEO Lynn Osmond, have been shortlisted in recent weeks after interviews to become the next CEO of the tourism group. And it's also unclear how close the city and its nonprofit tourism promotion agency are to hiring either. But the search has narrowed again three months after the Choose Chicago board relaunched the search, a move that followed a fruitless six months pursuing candidates for the job. But the lengthy process has also left the city's Convention and Visitors Bureau without a leader at a critical time, with the local hospitality sector struggling to recover from pandemic-related downturns and Chicago grappling with both real and perceived crime issues. The downtown hospitality market is counting on Choose Chicago for help as they slowly climb out of the pandemic hole. The recovery of Chicago hotels has lagged behind most other major markets, with revenue per available room at Chicago-area hotels last year down 40 percent from 2019 levels, according to hospitality data and analytics firm STR. For comparison, the nation's top 25 largest markets averaged 33 percent below 2019 levels, while the national average was behind its 2019 performance by just 17 percent. And as Ecker also notes in his reporting, key to boosting Chicago's numbers will be a meaningful return of convention and trade show business, which typically accounts for about 20 percent of all downtown hotel rooms booked each year, according to data from Choose Chicago. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Ali Moradi. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio on demand. Please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.